0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and movers and shakers of the social world. Today we talk with Dr. Gregory Hooks of Washington State University and Dr. Brian McQueen of Upper Iowa University, recent winners of the Political Sociology Section Best Article Award. Our conversation touches upon racial migration, defense spending, and how the post-World War II era was a critical juncture in the future of the social welfare state in America. talking today with Drs. Gregory Hooks and Brian McQueen, co-authors of a recent piece in American Sociological Review titled American Exceptionalism Revisited, The Military-Industrial Complex, Racial Tension, and the Underdeveloped Welfare State. Um, so to get going, what I thought was most interesting about this article is the way you kind of argue that militarism and national security really profoundly affected the New Deal, uh, even though that's you know, really only thought of as a domestic policy. And, and I think it's a great example of how you know, sometimes seemingly unrelated international processes can sort of drastically shape domestic issues. So I, I guess I'm curious, what brought you to looking sort of at these large international programs in their relation to the New Deal in the first place? I guess I'll go first.
1: I did a dissertation in the mid-80s on uh, World War II economic planning. I had a book on the topic. And one of the things that I was struck by in the course of doing that work, now that research focused on really the industrial planning for the war and, Mm -hmm. uh, and the rise of the Pentagon. But... After completing that, and it was some of it in the book, I, I went around saying that uh, the New Deal wasn't debated and defeated, it was swept away in a flood of Pentagon money. And But I never really did the research to back up that impression I had. And Edimenta published a book, um, Bold Relief, that really framed the question for me in a way that you know, was researchable, and he did two things. One is he made the claim. And I think it's still the minority view, but nonetheless, he made the claim that the United States didn't lack a welfare state. It actually had a surprisingly robust one, but mm-hmm. it didn't survive. And secondly, he also articulated um, an argument in terms of political geography of where support came for a social democratic, or, uh, social democratic uh, policy agenda or uh, you know, a welfare state without apology. And I didn't agree with what Ed said about World War II, but I thought the way that he framed the, framed the question in his book, lent itself to um, mobilizing on that to actually document the impression I'd drawn about the New Deal being swept away in a flood of money,
2: from the military side of the house. Sure. Of the federal government. I my interest in this came from the idea of the racial tensions. There's a, a wide range of research looking at how. Uh, racial tensions were arising at this point in time with immigration of non-white populations into northern urban centers. And this had been addressed in terms of inequality, but I was thinking that it must have some impact on the decisions that Democratic legislators were able to make in in preventing legislation, progressive legislation, from developing largely. And that's uh, intersected nicely with the rise of the New Deal uh, and World War II spending at this point in time.
0: Sure, and it, it, I guess I'm just kind of looking for before we get t- too deep into the conversation, just to kind of, um, I guess, a short synopsis of, of what the findings are, like how these factors did work together uh, to sort of, I guess, as you say, wash away the New Deal state.
1: Well, the dependent measure the, for our uh, multivariate analyses is the change in democratic representation and uh, uh from the mid 1930s to the late 40s and it, it it's the mid 1930s because that was the crest of democratic influence over congress and that's when many of the of the new deal uh much of the new deal policy agenda was put in place and in the late 40s we're talking about the congress that passed the Taft-Hartley Act and otherwise uh made the US welfare state Classically anemic, gutted it in many ways, and certainly uh, stymied any uh, building on new deal initiatives in the post war era so that 's what we 're trying to explain mm-hmm. and the most robust finding that we had in terms of you know explained variants and so forth is where they built the new, where they built the military industrial complex and we measure that by where they built uh, aircraft manufacturing facilities, which is distinct right. from aircraft parts and things like that, but really making aircraft for military purposes. Those, those areas lost heavily. Uh, Democrats lost heavily in those in those regions, and that that going back to Adamenta's contribution to this, it turns out his much of his claim. I mean, it's a, it, obviously his arguments are multifaceted, but mm-hmm. in simple terms, the older polities, the older states in the United States, tended to be uh, hesitant about a social welfare agenda in the in the south the southeast the racist politics and the non-democratic he calls it a non-democratic polity mm-hmm. was resistant to social welfare initiatives especially if they were universalistic and would include non-whites in them sure in the northeast and the older cities of the you know the original industrial belt of the united states there were patronage politics playing out more or less conservative more or less liberal uh, but one thing that my impression is one, one thing they had in common is these patronage systems were pretty localistic. And and for that reason, they weren't very happy about shifting these resources to federal distribution because it would up, upset a patronage system. And again, sometimes there was a over and above that a conservative ideology. And again, I, I, I won't try to summarize all the research on that. But basically sure. what that means is that, uh, again, in simplistic terms, east of the Mississippi, there was not a lot of momentum towards a social welfare uh, system, and the real energy came west of the Mississippi and had to do with uh, less attachment to certainly the the racist polities of the southeast were not reproduced west of the Mississippi, but even the patronage systems were much more anemic, part of it having to do with the timing of the um, the timing with which states joined the union and the the kind of politics that were incorporated at that time. Mm-hmm. What was interesting about the Military industrial complex is it, uh, and it doesn't, though it's easy to talk about it in terms of a plot given the way it played out, it just so happens, and and I do think this is a contingent development having to do with fighting wars across the Pacific for the first time in the US's history and other uh, contingent and specific characteristics of the aircraft industry. The military industrial complex was overlain with the very jurisdictions that were most supportive of social welfare. And Democrats lost. Part of the background research for this article, we looked into, you know, what does this really mean? In my state, the state of Washington, in uh, the 1930s, every, I think there were eight uh, congressmen and women, I think all men, though, uh, in the 1930s, and each of them was a Democrat. By 1948, and again, the reason Washington's sailing, this is, uh, you know, Boeing was headquartered in Seattle, where aerospace was an enormous uh, tail that wagged the dog here in terms of the in terms of the economy of the state and so in in the 1930s this state was i think every every member of congress in the house of representatives was a democrat in 1948 only one was and that was scoop jackson who was known as the senator from boeing so he was uh, sure and so it was really quite a a profound shift of of who controlled the legislative agenda speaking for the state of washington and, you know, we looked into a little bit of it and they really were, you know, in terms of being swept away, a lot of the activities in the state of Washington had to do with natural resource development, had to do with, you know, the classic New Deal kinds of programs in the 1930s. Those were just less interesting when you had such an enormous employer in Boeing and related activities. And there were other activ other things going on. Sure. I do think that uh, New Deal, obviously we... We chose to start at the crest of the New Deal, so obviously it was going to get worse before it got better. Instead of getting mm-hmm. better, I guess, because you're running into ceiling effects. But the real, the real collapse here in in Washington. The same thing happened in jurisdictions in California. And again, if you start ticking off where the military-industrial complex went, especially on the west coast, it was just an absolute hemorrhaging. So that was the biggest finding in terms of, you know, a flood of money washed it away. It was actually a flood of jobs, uh, to be more precisely. That's what we view. So that was probably the most robust finding of predicting where Democrats lost. Sure. And, uh, Brian Brian could probably do a uh, would be a good time given Brian's agenda to talk about the how race wove into that story of the military industrial complex.
0: Exactly. I was just going to ask you that uh, a related claim is that racial migration patterns also affected this quite significantly. So I was hoping you comment on that.
2: The importance of race was it shifted the the basis of the working class, the working class itself was changing in these industrial centers as it went from a homogeneous white working class that was concerned with working class issues to a working class that was more heterogeneous. It had minority and majority group members in it and majority group members held the political power at this point in time. They became less supportive of Democratic legislators that were that supported social policies that uh, Appeared to benefit disproportionately the the minority members of of the areas. It also, mm-hmm. you know, of these industrial areas, it it also created a a situation where whites for the first time begin to ask questions of of racial or, or racially charged questions, and they see African Americans are taking our jobs, they're taking our taking over our schools, they're taking over our neighborhoods, and, and this racist agenda largely undermine the, the, the ability of northern democratic legislators to make progressive policy changes to increase so, access to civil rights as well as other social programs.
0: You know, I was wondering, this might be too far of a tangent, but but now that you mentioned that, I'm curious if you see any sort of the roots in the same kind of uh, resistance to affirmative action uh, that you see in the kind of resistance to New Deal spending here in terms of the ideologies or tactics deployed in that sense.
1: Yes and no. I mean, obviously, there's a uh, there's a, I don't know how to characterize it, but it's almost a nativistic sort of quality to both, right? That sure. we were here first and we should have it and these other people don't really belong. But one thing is different, in, uh, and this is a, a slight difference to what Brian just said, there wasn't, it wasn't because there was no jobs. Right now, in Affirmative Action, it's about employment. Sure. The problem was during World War II, in some of these war centers, there were too many, there were too many jobs and too few people. And the federal government actively recruited non-whites, actively went to the southeast, white and black, and recruited uh, workers to migrate, subsidize the cost of migration. And uh, to bring them to war centers where labor was needed. And so uh, places like Detroit, uh, which again is uh, made, they made some airplanes, but they really made like aircraft parts and things like that. It didn't, you know, it didn't become a, an aircraft hub. Uh, Actually, uh, whites from Appalachia weren't especially popular or well regarded in Detroit either. And and, uh, blacks that came were not. You know, well regarded. And, and one of the larger riots during World War II was in Detroit, and it was sparked by the federal government building a housing complex called Sojourner's, Sojourner, with the Sojourner Complex or Sojourner Truth. I can't remember if they used both names. But whites were aggrieved that they were in a place where they were doing this patriotic work and they didn't have a place to live, and they had to share public spaces with blacks because the because the you know the city services were so constrained by the stress of the war, and then the federal government, and again the federal government, I'm, quite specifically, was building housing for blacks that were that was not a, being made available to whites, and so they felt aggrieved on many fronts. But it wasn't because of jobs, and again, affirmative action sure. now is it, jobs are scarce, and I want one, but this affirmative ja- action is getting in my way. During World War II, it was really um, the sharing of of uh, resources in a real sense of um, unfairness that people had to share bathrooms, share schools, share housing, share neighborhoods uh, interracially. And and whites didn't think that that was right. And so it it was a slightly different thing, though, again, it's not very hard to find rhetoric or, you know, and the thing about affirmative action is that the, the shift Affirmative action is a federal initiative. Again, it's playing out differently by states now, but mm-hmm. it began with Nixon's affirmative action. Uh, I believe he. I think Nixon was the first one I know. Kennedy, I can't remember the specific history, but I think Kennedy made affirmative action something like affirmative action specific to federal employment, and Nixon I think broadened it so that that really was a federal initiative. So if people feel aggrieved by the federal government overreaching, and certainly some of the riots that I'm familiar with, which were whites rioting, by the way, not blacks, right. as an initiative, as, as, as the initial wave, really was an, a feeling that the federal government was somehow overreaching and getting in their way. So, In terms of the specific modeling, we didn't There's a couple of things about race that, uh, in, terms of, in terms of growth of non-white population, which is what we measured, uh, there was either a lot or there was none. Right. So that you, it really wasn't a continuous measure. So there is a possibility that uh, the the influences are more uh, pervasive and subtle than our article captures just because the way it's distributed, we ended up putting in a dummy variable because you either had zero or a 100,000, you know, so that the distribution is right. not something that you could just throw in as a continuous measure. Nonetheless, how uh, we didn't find that at the zero order—that is, a, as a standalone variable—race didn't was not significantly predictive uh, of uh, you know the fate of Democratic legislators. However, it did intersect with the military-industrial complex. That is, if you had the mix of a, of a, a manufacturing center that was. Expanded in terms of the manufacture of aircraft, which was the cornerstone of the military industrial complex, and you had a shift. If you had a net increase in non-white migration to that uh, economic region, but then you then it got worse still for Democrats. So race, again, as we were able to measure it, race race had a came in to make a for, from the vantage point of a Democratic legislator. Race had the race had the uh, consequence of making uh, a precarious situation even worse in terms of re-election prospects.
0: I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, uh, too. In in the article, you talk a lot about how the post-World War II period was uh, sort of of central importance and really kind of a critical juncture in what you're talking about. So I've got kind of a two-part question about that. The first is, uh, if you could give a a, a nice uh, description of the difference between path dependency and a critical juncture... And then also, if you could explain what made the post-World War II period such an important critical juncture for, you know, now a half century plus of social policy.
1: The, the terminology path dependency and critical juncture come out of the comparative historical tradition and especially uh, concerns with institutions and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the critical juncture, you know, you're going to edit this out, right? So if this, if this doesn't, if this seems goofy, feel free to, to leave this next part out. But if you think about oh, the... Sure. If you're familiar with Paris and you come to the Arc de Triomphe, there's all kinds of streets that come in. You go around the traffic circle, then you go off in a different direction, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with it, it's the first time you're there. It's wildly chaotic and and dangerous to cross the street there, right? And so a critical juncture, I guess one way to think of it is is something like this this, uh, traffic circle at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris or something like that, where everything comes together and mixes around. And then you've got all the, I don't know how many is 12 streets. Once you, once you start off on these avenues and you leave the Arc de Triomphe, it's hard to get back, right? Especially as you go. And so there's something like this in terms of the literature. The critical juncture is a time where decisions loom large. That is, they will loom large for a, um, a long time to come. And it's hard to say exactly why it's a critical at least i haven't seen, and this is one of the criticisms of it, which I think is legitimate, is that it's almost always defined post hoc oh, that was a critical juncture because these things happened, and they were they were a big deal and so it's not an entirely uh satisfying concept in that way, but I think it is um given the tools at our disposal and you know the fact that you know history runs in one direction, you don't get to have a repeated trial and like you would in other areas of, uh, the social right. sciences. I think critical juncture has a value to play of looking for something where a lot of things are at stake and Stevens and Huber, they did a, you know, they, their contributions pretty important. And, and the reason we believe, um, we relied heavily on Stevens and Huber. And we also relied on Jacob hacker's work on the immediate post-war period where Stevens and Huber make the case that looking cross nationally. So it's an for our purposes, an empirical argument they they develop quite a bit of theory for this, but they, I think document that the, the balance of power in terms of left, right parties and and so forth in the immediate post world war two period loomed large for decades to come. And I think it's, that's an empirical argument. Um, and they document that it plays out that where you had a left, uh, left labor coalition in power, uh, immediately after the war, they put in place, a more robust welfare state that became institutionalized and hard to remove. And where you had a conservative uh, alliance in power at that period, they tended to put in place an anemic or absent welfare state. Excuse me? And it was hard to build on that foundation. So it became a critical juncture, difficult to change. Now, the path dependency is the second part. Once you start down this path, it's difficult to return and reset and say, oh, we made a mistake. We really wanted a robust social welfare state, and we want to do a reset and start over. And there, uh, I can't recall, I don't know of a single instance where that happened, where there was a, uh, a profound reset. And so the, the notion of path dependency is that as you take a step down the path, it's hard to reverse, come back, and go down the second path. That is sure. what you take the first step. The, and, and with each step, the inertia builds more still. In terms of politics, that means that you have uh, people's careers attached to being on that path. It means that you have corporations that are making money on this. One of the one of the things that comes out of the historiography of this is that and, and we cite in our article is that Taft Hartley is of course is seen as an anti-labour act. Right. It really made it very difficult to organize labor. Where labor unions were not well entrenched prior to that legislation, it became very difficult for uh labor unions to expand afterwards however there was other aspects of that of that bill that are that are related to the welfare state and that is organized labor was given a, a seat at the table to guarantee health health benefits and to and, and pensions and oftentimes actually became the agent that actually took in those funds and distributed them so organizationally a labor union was able to justify itself saying look we're, we're able to provide you better health care than you would have. We'd be able to help you with pensions. And so, organizationally, labor unions were, in terms of this path dependency, they became attached to the anemic, uneven, um, employment based welfare provisions that are the hallmark of the anemic US welfare state. And so, it's not just corporations and politicians, but labor unions themselves became resistant to a universalistic option because of the organizational. Incentives that were embedded in Taft-Hartley. That's an example of path dependency. Taft-Hartley is an especially important piece of legislation in terms of the notion of critical juncture that it, it it defined how welfare, how retirement and healthcare benefits would be distributed. And finally, I don't think uh, going back to you know our attachment to World War II, I don't think it's an accident that it was right after World War II that this played out. That is. World War II was a mass industrial war. The democracies well the, all, all of the belligerents required uh, a massive mobilization of of people disproportionately male to serve as warriors sure and the veterans there were a lot of veterans running around who had uh, legitimate you know in terms of the politi- the politics of this they had their claims were uh, almost unchecked in terms of their legitimacy. The question was how to deliver on their legitimate concerns. And and at the same time, you had the mass industrial mobilization across, again, all belligerents, including the United States. And they too were patriotic, and so how are you going to handle that? So the settling of what will be our social welfare state was at the same time of settling citizen claims against a government that just asked them to to endure the horrors of a war. so. The reason I think uh, Stevens and Huber are right that it's a critical juncture is that so many citizens who are the you know obviously the focus of a welfare state, mm-hmm. such a large proportion of the citizenry were actually involved in a patriotic endeavor for the state where the state owed them. I mean it's a classic sort of sure. thing in terms of comparative historical sociology is the ratcheting up of the state's fiscal capacity and also its accepting it, – expanding obligations to its citizens following great wars. So the, the reason this was a critical juncture in terms of a welfare state had to do with just the massive mobilization for that war. And again, the path dependency part of it is that once these decisions were made, there was, uh, and uh, you know, with every passing year, with every passing layering in of of uh, different actors and different investments, the inertia of of resetting the welfare state just grew.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I I actually think your Arc de Triomphe example worked out quite great, so I don't think it'll be edited out. But it helped me understand critical juncture. Um, <laughs> but I I you know kind of in in starting to wrap up here a little bit, I, I'm interested in what the both of you see sort of as, as the contribution from this study, you know? How does this maybe change our understanding of the welfare state and social policy or, or racial migration patterns or things like these? What do you see, uh, the, the both of you, as the, the big contribution this piece brings to the literature?
1: One of the things that was challenging about this research was to methodologically find a way to lay over the, um, the economic regions, which was, for us, you know, the military-industrial complex is a, is an investment, you know, it's, a, it's an economic infrastructure related to war manufacture. Sure. How do you, lay, how do you layer that over congressional districts? And again, we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about how hard this was, and it was. To okay. create a, if you can do that, if you can find a, a methodologically robust and theoretically sound way to overlay, again, depending upon your question, and ours, because it was the military industrial complex, was really an economic region. I think overlaying those sorts of things uh, provides an opportunity to really start to look at some of the big questions about over time change in the political landscape of the United States or other countries. So I had been interested in this question of, uh, you know, in the military industrial complex literature, it's not very hard to find an account that talks about, you know, starting with C. Wright Mills. An account of generals and conservatives conspiring to roll back various things. Sure, and then when you most of the studies that study that found that not to be true. That is any kind of, um, and, and certainly our study. There is no evidence that generals and conservatives met in Washington D.C. during World War II and said, "I know, let's put, let's build up Boeing in Seattle, and that way there will be fewer Republicans left in the state." I mean, nobody did that. Right. Uh, but the the outcome was very powerful. So. Finding a way to be able to look at overtime change in the kind of political landscape is challenging, and I think one of the things we did methodologically was we we have a plausible again i i i'm, I'm sure that a critic would i'm sure that a critic can find things to object to and if if people take this up, but I think it would be very interesting, for instance, with this kind of overtime uh, sort of look at the political landscape and we wouldn't be looking at the military industrial complex in any simple way to be able to look at What is the, what is the prospects for uh, welfare state or political control of the United States going forward? You know, what, what's change, what's changing under the feet of um, political actors that's changing the economy and therefore will change migration and all sorts of other things, which is what we are talking about. If you think about it, we're, we're saying over, we're basically claiming that over World War II, a profound economic change was induced by this war mobilization, which set in motion migration patterns. Which changed the political landscape under the feet of powerful, influential, and smart political actors, but they were unable to rewrite the script just because they were connected. And if that would be a very powerful contribution, if if that uh, something I've been thinking about how we do it, but to be able to predict sure. the Obama coalition, whether it's if you look at the you know the. The political reporting on the Obama coalition has to do with uh, all sorts of things, but if we were able to really contribute to that kind of discussion of what this is, I think that'd be a I think that would be a long term invaluable contribution. And I oh, and I think this is a good segue to turn over Brian because Brian's dissertation research was on the civil rights movement, which is really not really about the military industrial complex, but actually tried to make use of the same sort
2: of methodological approach to look at a different question, different but of course related question that is really more where my interest lies in looking at how this has given rise to different types of inequality and embedded the inequality in the political structure in the United States and what i looked at with my dissertation was how these these tensions racial tensions within local areas within economies prevented or or shaped support for the civil or uh the civil rights act and the voting rights act and this came out strongly in the research that areas where Racial tensions were higher, mm-hmm. had let, were far less likely to support the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, sure, and sure. these coalitions had to be built to, to pass it on, over those.
0: Well, I, I think that's a, a, a good spot to wrap it up. I think this is a great, really sort of great breakdown of the article, and I really appreciate the both of you taking your time out to talk to us about it. We're delighted to be uh, invited to participate. Yes. So, the you. this podcast or learn more about the research discussed today check us out online at the societypages.org slash office hours as always thanks to the office hours co-hosts the entire tsp family and the university of minnesota college of liberal arts